surrounding the crawling ant, you will notice that the ant will suddenly lose orientation, will suddenly stop in its track and stay within the limits of the confined circle. Well, that's interesting. Well, so now the ant has smaller space to operate in. So within that circle that you have drawn earlier, you draw yet another circle within that circle that you had just drawn. And you will find the ant more so, even limiting more so in the movement and stays in the smaller circle of the, uh, what you have just drawn. How many of you guys have seen this before? Um, I'm not a scientist. I, I, don't, I don't plan to flex my scientific knowledge. So I actually tried this in the past. It absolutely works. You don't have a pen. You could do it, do it with a marker. If you're outside, uh, do it with a chalk, and it works like magic. I was so fascinated. So guess what I did? I saw a trail of ants, and I drew a huge circle. So I could draw even more concentric circles within just to see if this theory would prove to be true. And indeed, it's true. And they say, again... This is not a heart check by the scientific data or whatever, but they say the reasons why the ants get trapped inside the pen circles is that the ants perceive that these fake boundaries that have been drawn up by the pen or markers, they perceive that to be the real boundaries. So they limit themselves somehow in the little insect anti-brain. They tell themselves, hey, we got to adjust. We can't go outside now because that's now the new limitation of where we should reside. And they said by the, the releasing of the chemicals, whatever they say, uh, they lose track of direction. Um, again, please, if you're a science nerd, forgive me. I, I may not have the hard data straight. They release pheromones that help with sense of direction. So apparently that gets blocked by the releasing of the chemicals of the pen or chalk. So they don't do that. And also, also, I don't know how they measure this, but ants, they all of a sudden get struck with fear of slipping. I don't know. But they say, again, don't quote me, the scientists, smart people are saying this. So upon encountering, they somehow sense that, wow, the new chemical or the new surface that have just been presented to us, they are afraid that they would not have any traction, so they within box themselves in a new enclosed circle. Again, if you want to try this on your own, please pick up some ants at the tabletop available next to you. And I thought, man, these ants getting trapped in pen circles I thought this could be, this is very indicative of our faith lives as well. Because whether you want to readily admit or not, we love boundaries. We love familiarity. We like seeing, oh, what I can do, what I can't do. I love, if you're, if you're in any business of managing, uh, managing budget or finances, even for your own home, is it not true that we need to know the boundaries of our, how far our finances would go? Actually, that's called what? Responsibility. If you're not doing that, you need, don't talk to me. You need to go talk to somebody else. Right? We like these boundaries. We have rules within our household as well. Recently, there was a mini revolt 
um, a mutiny inside my house. They're saying, Dad, why do we have these, all these rules? And then they said, all of these rules are for you. You like these rules. You need these rules. I'm like, oh my goodness, my world is falling apart. But we like these boundaries because these boundaries give us a sense of what? Security. These boundaries give us a sense of what? Sense of control. We like understanding what we are walking into. We don't like uncertainty. So in the way that we live our lives, we live our faith lives inside the box. I'm not belittling you. I'm not marginalizing you, but in a way that if God were to see us in the way that we operate out of our faith, I wonder if we should be perceived as little tiny ants trapped in these drawn, pen drawn, uh, what? Pen drawn circles. And God is there thinking, man, would you just step out of these circles? If you would just have a little more faith, because where I am, what I want to do in you and through you, you will certainly need to come out of the enclosed space that you have boxed yourself in. Hebrews 11 says this, faith is assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And you and I know that faith is the very thing that brings the realm of the unknown, the, the realm of the impossible, the realm of God, and makes that into a tangible reality for us. And as God's people, over and over again, we are called to plunge into the thoughts and the ways of God. You understand that faith is a connector of where we live and where God wants us to live. Faith is a connector between the hope and the reality. Faith is a connector of what is seen and what is not seen. Faith is often the connector of what we wish for and the actualization of the promises of God. Faith is a connector of what is possible and what is impossible. And finally, faith is a connector of where we are and where God calls us to be. Without faith, you cannot live in the ways of God. Because certainly every time, every time that God calls for a task, God releases a calling upon us. It will always necessitate you exercising your faith. Faith necessitates you and me to dare to go and live outside the box. Turn to your neighbor and say, hey, let's get out of the box. You need to, if you're sitting next to your spouse, you need to elbow him, elbow him. Hey, man, you need to get out of the box. And today's sermon, I want to talk about living according to faith. Not just the kind of faith that I believe and I agree. I'm not just talking about the cognitive understanding in your mind, but a, the kind of faith that inspires your heart, the kind of faith that says, you know what, let's just go for it. I know we don't quite understand it. I know it doesn't really uh, make all sense, but you know what, it, we feel the inspiration from the Lord. We, we have the sense that God is calling us to do something, and let's just go for it. I'm talking about this radical boldness. I'm talking about this uh, uh, action, proactive uh, faith 
that, that we are to live not on the basis of what we think we cannot do, but, but on what we know that God can do. I understand. I'm just like you. If I were to take an honest assessment of my life, if I were to honest, take a look uh, into my giftedness, gift set, my talents, my abilities, there's so many things that I believe that I cannot do in this world. That's the truth. When I look at myself, I know that I'm not equipped to be a very good father. On my own, I know that, oh my goodness, how hard is it to be a, even an average husband? Come on. It's hard. And, and I look at myself. I've been in pastoral ministry now for 24 years. I look at myself, man, I say, God, why did you choose me? Why me? Because when I look at myself, I don't have the natural gifts of what makes a great pastor. But over and over again, God fills my heart with the desire and the sense of burden. There's always a chasm of, Scott, this is what I'm calling you to do. And here I am, say, God, look at me. I can't do what you're calling me to do. And faith allows me to take that deep plunge or take that huge leap and nudge closer to where God is standing. And this has been true all throughout the Bible. You're talking about Abraham, Moses, just like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, even Mary, all the 12 disciples, the stinking fishermen, the tax collectors. And Bible is littered with people of God that have been called for tasks greater than what they thought they would be able to do on their own. And this powerful encounter that you and I have just read, we see Jesus calling out to his disciples to do something that had never, ever been done before. You would realize that you, had, you could only be a casual Bible reader, not even a scholar. You know there's a only one instance that a man has walked on water. Guess what? There have been several, more than, at least more than a couple, dead being raised. More than several instances couple instances at least where thousands were fed supernaturally. A lame walking, but you know what? Someone walking on water, actually, this has never been replicated in the history of mankind. So we're talking about something, that's true, right? We're talking about something very, very special. And I want us to learn from this account I want you to get a clear sense of what God may be calling you to do. And the box that you have perceivably drawn for yourself, could it be that God is saying, hey, come on out today. We're going to take a walk together, you and me. That's not going to be on the ground. You and me together, we shall venture out to do something that had never, ever been done before. And it's my prayer as your pastor, it's my prayer as a fellow believer and a brother in the faith, man, it would be so cool if we could walk on water. How many of you guys want to experience such miracle? How many say, man, like I'm the, literally, God has chosen me literally because I'm God's favorite. Literally he has chosen me to do something that has never been done before. How many of you guys know that that's what God is designed from you today? He's desiring and planning that for you and me this very day. 
But let's talk about the life in the boat first. When Jesus appears in the, in the scene that we have just read, Jesus had just finished feeding the crowd 5,000, the scholars say, about 20,000 people, if you count women, children, and the elderly, 20,000 people had just been fed. Think about that. Jesus was so cool. He was like, he, if they had Twitter back then, he, I mean, he's like gaining like millions and millions of followers on an hourly. Thousands fed. People are wanting to hang out with Jesus. They want to know about Jesus. They want to hear more from Jesus. And you see Jesus immediately, the scriptures tell us, he immediately sends away the disciples. It's kind of weird. Jesus said, hey, no, 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 disciples, come here. Hey, Peter, Peter, Thomas, Thomas, hey, get over here. And he puts them on a boat. He sends, he sends them to the other side of the lake. And Jesus remains behind all by himself, dealing with 20,000 people. That's some customer service. He's handling 20,000 people by himself and allowing them to be scattered and to return home safely. And then the scriptures tell us that he spends time alone in the mountains. What? Doing what? Prayer. He's praying. After he has quiet time with his dad, he has just prayed, thank God, recharge, and now around 3 a.m., 4 a.m., so Jesus, man, one thing I want to be like Jesus, man, I don't want to be like Jesus waking up that early. He was already up 3 a.m. It is now having to catch up to what? The disciples, because they're one team. What happened to the disciples? They were well ahead of Jesus. So they're in the middle of the lake. Jesus has to catch up. I think he could have flown, but he chooses to what? Walk on water. And he's walking towards the disciples. Verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. The disciples were terrified. I want to just convey something very cool here. The word terrified, it's not fear. Normally, if you know a little bit of a Greek etymology, the, 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 the Greek word for fear is normally what? Uh, English word, this is where we get the word phobia. It's actually phobos. So when you think about fear and being scared, we should come into the word, that, that word should be fear. But it's the, this word that's conveyed here is not fear. It's actually terrified. In the original translation, it has the nuance of they were greatly disturbed. Being terrified, they were disturbed, meaning disturbance is different than being afraid or being scared. Meaning, it, the author is conveying that they were troubled because this is something that they have never encountered before. They weren't emotionally afraid. Rather, they were troubled because they didn't know what to make of what they were seeing. So the disciples are terrified by the sight that Jesus was walking on water. Because this was so out of the norm. It was so beyond their comprehension, they didn't know what to make of it. So the disciples were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. And they cry, then they cried out in fear. You see, when God is about to move in your life, 
when God is about to do something special in your life, when God is about to call you onto something new, something awesome, you will often feel this way. It's not just the fact that you are scared. You are so unfamiliar with what God is about to do. And this is where most people stop. And we say, God, I thank you. I love you. I love that you love me. You care for me. But God, what you are asking me to do, I've just never done it before. I've just never seen it before. Say, God, I'm sorry. And this is what we do. We admire Jesus from far, far, far. We're amazed by what he can do. Come on, somebody. But we are never amazed or impressed what we can do, what we have been called to do in response to what God has shown us. Come on. And we live our lives because, man, look at this circle. I'm drawing these circles with scented pen, baby. Pretty colors. All the while, God is saying, man, let's erase these lines. Don't you want to stand where I am? And we listen to the people. We look around. You know what? This is a separate sermon. You know, you know what? When I, when I read this, you know what my frustration is? Why, why is it just Peter that's walking on water? I mean, when I look at it, what about the 11 other disciples? Oh, man, you buffoon. You don't even have to do the first one. Peter took all the risk. At that point, we should read, guess what? Then the 11 disciples saw what Peter was doing. They all jumped into the water. They all started to walk on water together. And they had a great campfire, kumbaya, fire on water. I'm sure that could have happened too if Jesus was there. Again, that's a different sermon. And at the height of their anxiety or Jesus' anxiety, I think that, uh, I mean, the, the anxiety of his disciples, Jesus says, take courage. Do not be afraid. It is I. Take courage, meaning, hey, come on. Don't be afraid. It is I. And there's a clear sense of revelation and affirmation of his identity. Now let's get to the good part. So Jesus is still standing on water, right? Jesus saying, hey, don't be afraid. And in verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, Command me to come to you on the water. I, I took the liberty of uh, transliterally, uh, translating that vision, a version to my own version. What Peter really must have sounded when he said that. He said, Jesus, can I do that too? You're there. Can you make me walk, walk on water too? I think, you know, it's so written formally, but in, in, in that setting, Peter is like geeked out. Peter is like excited. He was sleeping. He was terrified like everyone else. But immediately the sense of fear, the being terrified, gets replaced by the excitement of the prospect of doing something so radical. And Peter says, Jesus, if it's you, I love that, 
If indeed it is you, if you are indeed the person that you say you are, if you're the person, the same rabbi that I know that I've been following, then certainly command me to walk on water. Peter's humility is also underscored here. Peter recognizes, understands that what he's about to do, he could only do if the Lord permits him to do. Come on. And he says, God, if it's really you, certainly you are going to command me to walk on water as well. And Jesus says, sure. Hey, man, let's go. Let's do it together. Let's go surfing together. I'm not a surfer. I've tried. It's very difficult. He stands on water. Let me say this, guys. If you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. If you want to walk on water, you have to leave the place of your comfort and security. If you want to walk on water, you have to dare leaving the place of which you have been. If you want to be where Jesus is, that requires you to leave behind where you had been. You see, leaving activates God. Leaving activates God. The call came for Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. But what did God say? But if that were to take place, then you have to leave this land of ooze. The place that made you wealthy, the place and the land that made you a, a master of 2,000 plus servants. Again, you have a good life, but I'm calling you to make a, you into a great nation. That required Abraham to leave first. Moses, before he became this great leader for the nation of Israel, what did Moses have to leave, uh, do? He had to leave the life of being a shepherd and a scared runaway murderer. Moses had to take a step of faith, had to leave a place of familiarity and security. And you, do you remember how, I mean, what's the modern comparison? It's like Moses was a hot mess. <laughs> Chapter 3 of Exodus, he kept saying, God, this is not me. God, I can't do this. I can't even speak. You got the wrong guy. Take my brother, Aaron. And God kept saying over and over and over again, saying, dude, I got the right, I promise, I promise. I put it down, Moses. Please come. Moses had to leave the place of security and familiarity. Joshua had to leave behind the wilderness that they were part of for 40 years. David had to leave his life of being a sh shepherd. As obvious and simple as this may sound, you cannot walk on water if you do not leave the boat. You cannot live for God unless you will leave for God. Come on, you can, some, somebody can say amen right there. Let me say that again. Let me give you one chance. You cannot live for God unless you're able to leave for God. Some of you guys... You have not truly lived for God because you have always been unwilling to leave. 
You have always admired God for what he could do, but you've never truly participated and joined in what he is calling you to do in your life, which is a really sad thing. This is why for me, I mean, as I'm a little bit older in the faith now, I'm, I'm more concerned about what the disciples, did not, other disciples did not do. Because Peter, guess what? I mean, we'll come back to this. That guy, Peter, got to walk on water. Not once, twice. But we see no recordings of the other disciples. Meaning they lived their rest of their lives while being fully present. And when this miracle took place, guess what? They're just mentioned as the bystanders and the audience. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, may you live as the main players, main characters of what God is calling you to do. Not as a backstage prop, not as a man one, woman 39, <laughs> or tree, because you're tall. Or, or grass, but we got to participate. We got to leave the boat. We got to leave the place of security. Is this making sense, guys? We have to not be like these ants living inside these pendron circles. We have to dare to live outside because Jesus is saying, Hey, man, I'm over here. Look at me. And he says to you, take courage. Dare again what I'm showing you that you can do. Read with me verse 30 now. But see, so now, are you, are you tracking? Peter sees Jesus. He asked for permission if he could walk on water. Jesus says, come on, you could, all, you could certainly walk on water. So Jesus is on the water already. I don't know how many steps he's taken, but he's, he's walking on water. But verse 30, but seeing the wind, everybody say with me, the seeing the wind. Seeing the wind, he became frightened. Here, the word is phobos. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took a hold of him. Said to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt and friends, I want to tell you, you have to fix your eyes on Jesus. Let vision move you. Vision and see what God sees. Keep your eyes fixated upon the one that is called you. We cannot walk on water when we lose sight of the one who has called us. At any moment, maybe congratulations for being brave enough to step out of the boat. But you understand that living life, living the new life outside of the boat requires brand new faith. It requires it to maintain the level of faith because the life is now different. When you're living in the boat, you're surrounded by the security. But when you have God has called you to walk on water, it's going to require you to keep your eyes fixated on Jesus every step you take. When you tread water, it's going to feel differently. And if you're not careful, you will be scared by the unfamiliarity that you're surrounded by. And I want to encourage you guys, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Your goal is now, 
we didn't leave the boat so we can say, hey, we left the boat. Remember, we left the boat because we want to say, now we want to walk on water. Come on, somebody. And for you to continue to walk on water, you and I need to be fixed on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And we cannot be afraid. And I hope Peter understood that when he got out of the boat, that was not the time to ask for a smaller boat or, or jet ski or, or, or life, what is it, um, life vest or what, what is it, the floaty thing that you, that's not the time to be asking for the new life that he calls you to live outside of the boat necessitates that you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. What are your eyes set upon today? Where does the source of your security and confidence come from? If it's anything other than Jesus himself, if it's anything other than the face and the presence of Jesus looking straight into you, say, hey, come where I am. If it is your ability, if it's your experience, if it's your uh, financial savings, if it is your relationships, guess what, friends? They are not enough to keep you on the surface of the water. Only Jesus himself and his guidance will keep you above the water. So Peter falls in. Verse 31. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Here, Jesus rescues Peter. Guess what? Peter kind of failed. Do you guys think Peter failed here? None of you guys? Do you think Peter succeeded? You guys are so indifferent. <laughs> Do you think Peter did great? Do you guys like what Peter did? You guys don't like what Peter did? Oh, you guys, some of you guys, oh, now split. Okay, now who's the faithful side? They, they think Peter did okay. They think um, Peter didn't do so well. Well, Peter fell into the water. Jesus immediately rescues him. And Peter's saying, Lord, save me. You know, I think in the past I read it in this tone. When it says, Peter, why did you doubt me? This is a tone that I had read in the past. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? I think that voice conveys, man, Peter messed up. I think there was a little bit of like disappointment. There's a little bit of um, not anger, but like, oh, man, you could have you done it, man. You could have you made it. Like, I think that's the tone that I had read up until these past two weeks. When I had read this passage again, now this is the tone that I'm reading it now. <sighs> you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Meaning, Peter, you could have made it. You could have done it. Don't feel bad. And, and for me, I don't know. There's less disappointment in the way that I read this passage now. There's certainly no remnant of anger on Jesus' part when he's saying that. 
He's not full of raging. Oh, you little, oh, Peter, why did you do that? You brought shame to me. You call yourself a disciple? You call yourself my follower? Oh, you, you have little faith. Oh. And can you see like Jesus raging? Like if you grew up in a, like a, maybe like an Asian church, that, maybe that's the tone that you've heard in. Oh, you failed again. How dare you? Ask Jesus to do something and, and you can't even last a full hike. But this time when I read it, I see Jesus full of compassion. He's in fact proud of Peter. He's like, man, out of the 12, you wanted to do this. And I'm going to do this again with you. Two weeks ago, I achieved a small dream of mine for my life. Actually, three, two and a half weeks ago, I took my 14-year-old son, and he's now official member of the 24-hour fitness gym. Sad. You guys are not impressed. You guys know exercising gym has been a big portion of my whole life in the past probably 20, almost 30 years of my life. And finally, he's of the age, and the summer discount certainly helped. So he's got three months free and only $17.99, guys, I swear to God. I'm not even getting commission here. So he said, Dad, I want to work out. I mean, let's, can you take me to the gym? So I'm like, wow, I don't even have to make it. So we signed up, 10 minutes, and we're getting our first exercise in. And, and the whole time, please, you know, you guys know how my family doesn't like when I talk about them. So, so, so use your own discretion. So we're at the gym, and it's the funniest thing. As soon as we clear credentials, we go in. The moment we're walking from the counter to the first workout station, which is the bench press thing, and he's like, he's like looking around the whole time. I don't know. It's like, do you know anybody here? He's constantly scanning in between like sets, in between putting the weights and the bar. He's constantly looking. You could tell, you know what? I think he was very self-conscious. And so I went first, hey, son, this is what you do. This is called the bench. This is the bar. And right now, you don't want, you're kind of, we want to get the form right, so we're not putting any weight on. So this is how you lift, and we're going, I'm, I'm showing him. And he's constantly looking around, and so I'm trying my best not to be an angry, frustrated father. He's like, just pay attention to me. Look at me. What are you looking at? So just do this. That's all you want to do. And he's laying down on the bench. He's doing his first set. And he's, he's looking around, too. He's, he, he finishes first set. He gets up. And then so I put my weight, and I do it. And he's looking around. And I think he felt that, I think he felt that um, doing the bar alone was not enough. I think he put it upon himself that he had to do more. He said, Dad, do you think I could try this on? You know what I'm thinking in my head. Bro, it's your first day. Take it easy. Get the form right. But it's like, you know Sure. So he says, I said, which one do you want to do? It's like, and he took the bigger one, which is a 10-pounder. I don't think that his brain worked quickly enough. It's like, that's 10 times 2. That's 20 pounds. That's almost 50% more than what he just barely did. He's like, yeah, that, 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 this one, this one. So I put on the 10. All right, man, your wish is my command. And as soon as I, he lifted, I helped him lift it, he went like. <laughs> and then he's immediately, he, he's, his face, and he said, oh, dad, 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 dad. 
and, and he shyly, nervously, I helped him up. And then he gets up. He, I think you could sense he was so embarrassed. He almost felt bad that he asked me to do something. But he had no idea how heavy that weight was for him. And he's like, he was almost like embarrassed to ask me to help him up. And I took the time right there to say, son, great job. I'm actually proud of that you wanted to try this. Do you think at that moment there was, you guys know, like you guys always give me this negative, like, rep. It's like, never go to the gym with Scott. <laughs> Some lie from the pit of hell. I mean, don't believe that. I'm a nice guy. Do you guys perceive like, oh, when, when Sammy couldn't do it, you probably yelled at him. I'm not that guy. I told him, I said, son, you did great. I'm actually proud of you that you're willing to do something. I said, son, if anything, you want to go for it when dad's around. And I assured him. And the whole time he's looking around because you know what he's thinking? Did somebody see me? He's probably feeling that. And I took that short moment to fully affirm that what he had just attempted to do he should be proud of. In the presence of someone more capable, you should dare to do something that you cannot do on your own. Friends, I don't believe for a second that Jesus, when he saw Simon Peter fall into water, I don't believe for a second that he was angry. I don't believe for a second that he was greatly disappointed. If anything, I'm thinking, man, Simon, you tried it. But, man, you could have done it more. I'm, I'm right here. I Come on. And it's so sad. We don't get to see more instances like this. Had Jesus' ministry expanded to what? Three years, four years, five years, man. We could have seen, we could be reading about Peter. Peter was holding rally on water. Peter was doing morning jog on water. I really believe that. Peter got to do that. Fast forward two and a half weeks, guys. We just went yesterday. My son warmed up with just a bar. On his third set, put the tens on each side and pumped out five different reps. Sometimes you and I are required to leave the place of comfort and familiarity. We have to dare ourselves. You know what? You look at it, we look at it as a man. What if I fail? I look at it as a man. I get to try this. And who cares? Who's watching? Who's the one that called you to do this? If God is the one calling you to do this, who cares if the rest of the world is laughing at you? Who cares if the rest of the world is criticizing you? I mean, are you sure you're doing this? It doesn't really make sense. But when you're infused with a sense of God is the one. You guys got my, you guys get my gist. So as I close today's sermon, I want you to be familiar with 
Where is Jesus standing in your life? Is he next to you? Or is he in front of you? And is a little bit distant from you? And I want you to survey where he's standing, where he's calling you to be, what he's calling you to do, and you're terrified because it doesn't look anything like where you have been. It doesn't look anything like what you think you can do on your own. You don't have the experience. You don't have the resources. You feel like you don't have the personality makeup. You feel like, let, let, let's be straight. You feel like you're way too sinful for this task. All throughout scriptures, God is about calling those that are broken, those that are inadequate, the Gideons and Moseses, the Davids, and it continues to elevate them, continues to charge them into places that the unknown, places of the amazing places that where you and I can't dare go. I close with this today. Your dreams, your plans, your ambitions, make sure that that's where Jesus is standing. Because if they're your, just simply your dreams and plans and Jesus is not there, guess what? You're going to sink first step. And you're going to wonder, like, why am I not moving forward? Make sure that Jesus is standing where your eyes are set upon. And pray, Jesus, be thou my vision. Let that be your cry. Let that be your prayer. Say, Jesus, I want to see you. I want to hear you. And as long as I'm with you, I will go with you. Let's get the praise team to come on up. Let's pray together. And I want you to reflect for the next couple of minutes.